Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republican Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. Are you ready for the latest news and the newest advice? Because if you're not, you're going to get it anyway. From Friday the 24th of July, it seems it will be now compulsory to wear a mask when you are in a shop. And if you don't wear one, you will be subject to a £100 fine. That is, of course, unless you work in a shop, uh, because then you won't have to wear a mask. If you're confused, so am I. Uh, and we will try and figure out what on earth is going on uh, over the course of the next three hours. I assume this is the same compulsory law, by the way, that means you will be fined for breaking all sorts of other laws brought in under the banner of COVID-19 lockdown. The same compulsory law that said you couldn't go out to a park when everyone went out to a park. The same law that said you couldn't drive to a beach when everyone drove to a beach. The same law that said you had to wear masks on public transport when loads of people don't bother. The same law that said you couldn't coagulate in groups of more than six and then there was a load of marches, including thousands of people in central London, in Manchester, uh, in Glasgow and elsewhere. The country seems uh, to be broadly split on the issues because basically a poll on Julia Hartley Brewer's show this morning had two thirds of people against wearing masks in shops. Who on earth is going to police it? Who on earth is going to hand out the fines? And why, if it is all about our safety from coronavirus, do we have to wait until a week on Friday for it to kick in? Because the Crown Prosecution Service, don't forget, is the same organisation that said to the police, we don't know what law, if any, anyone who you have given a fine to over COVID-19 law breaking has broken. They don't know what law you've broken. This is not a law. They're going to fine you 100 quid. Well, good luck with that. We'll be asking Professor Carol Sakura exactly what is going on. 0344 499 1000. Some people might say, uh, well, excuse me, if we needed to be wearing masks, shouldn't we have been wearing them for a while? Why do we have to wait until a week on Friday? Has Boris Johnson gone mad? That's the question. Uh, Coming up, we'll be finding out what the Labour Party has to say about the report into their anti-Semitism, which they received last week. We'll be asking what China will do to retaliate against our newfound backbone. And we'll be telling you all about the latest in boutique gin. That's right, it's a royal brand from Buckingham Palace. Later on, we'll be applauding Idris Elba for pointing out that cancelling old TV shows because they might be offensive is entirely wrong. It's more grist to the mill for the anti-wokists, of whom I'm apparently the leader. Could common sense actually be catching on? Well, not in the government, obviously. 0344 499 1000 is the number. Homeschooling today is with the Times Science Editor Tom Whipple, and it's all about the periodic table. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. 
Now, forgive me for pointing out the bleeding obvious, OK? But uh, if it's so dangerous to walk around without a mask on, why is everybody walking around without a mask on? Why have we not been told to wear masks before? Why are we now being told to wear masks a week on Friday? Why are people who work in the shops where we are supposed to wear masks being told that they don't have to wear a mask a week on Friday? Do you see where I'm going with this? I'm quite confused. I think Boris Johnson is also confused. And I think Matt Hancock is also confused. And Michael Gove, who basically said two days ago that this wouldn't happen, must be very confused. Let's talk to Professor Carol Sakura uh, to find out whatever it is that is going on in Downing Street, because uh, he's a man that should be able to throw some light on this. Professor Carol, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. And let me tell you, I'm confused too. <laughs> well, listen, if you're, confused, if you're confused, we're all in trouble, I'll tell you that. Now, listen, how can they possibly be taken okay. seriously when they tell us, one, we need a week and a half to get ready to wear a mask, when everybody uh, who doesn't have a mask can quite easily buy one in their corner shop? And two, how is it possible for them to tell us to wear them if shop people who are working in the shop don't have to? Both valid questions. Uh, I don't make the rules up, so don't shoot the messenger. No. So <laughs> I've reviewed the literature on masks. I, I suddenly, about a week ago, I thought we've got to take masks seriously. Other countries have taken masks seriously. And even, even when there was no pandemic, a lot of Asians, when they came over here, uh, wore masks. Yeah. You know, Bista Village is not far from me. It's a place where lots of Chinese people go to to get shopping. Mm -hmm. I don't understand the model. I don't want branded goods in my place. But anyway, people go on that train and they're all wearing masks. Yeah. That was long before Corona came. So certain cultures take it. The British culture is not about doing masks. And that's the difficulty. I you know, when you look at the literature, though, there is a small benefit. The benefit's not to you for wearing the mask, it's to other people if you happen to be infected. Mm. The difference between this virus and others is there's a period when you have no symptoms and you may never have symptoms, and yet you're highly infectious. Other viruses, usually you feel bad, you've got a temperature, you want to go to bed, and so you're not likely to go out on a train or on, a, on the tube or something. So this is different. So there's a marginal benefit. The killer experiment would be to take 100 people that have not been infected, put them in a room, take a super spreader into the room, let him dance or her dance around, singing away, spewing out uh, stuff, and then to do the reverse experiment where people wear masks or not wear mm. masks. Obviously, that's unethical and we can't do that. So you have to look at lots of papers in the literature, mainly from flu, mainly from SARS and MERS, and see what the benefits and there is a slight benefit and so but i can't explain if you're going to do it why not do it tomorrow right uh, well one why not do it tomorrow or how about why not do it back in sort of april when uh, we were supposedly at the peak of the infection rate it's exactly like the quarantine why introduce it four weeks ago six weeks ago whenever it was we should have been doing it in at the same time as lockdown um, and then you let the quarantine out and then you do it in a random way. The countries that have been selected for uh, the travel corridors seem to be random. And there's no rhyme or reason why China shouldn't be in there. It's got the lowest infection rate out at the moment. Yeah. And yet it's not in there. Yeah. I mean, I don't have a problem if the government wants to introduce some kind of safety measure. Uh, they're fully entitled to do so. 
But it doesn't appear to make very much sense to me on this particular occasion, because only two weeks ago, we were talking about opening up the economy, going out to the restaurants of this country, going out to the bars. Only this weekend, Michael Gove was urging everybody to go back to work, right? This will um, put a lot of people off. I and mean, we've got a poll this morning on The Breakfast Show with Julie Hartley Brewer. Two thirds of people think wearing a mask in a shop is unnecessary, um, which tells me that at least a third of those people will probably not go to the shops as a result. I think that's right. And you know, the high street's in big enough trouble as it is mm. with the internet shopping and so on. So I think we're really stuck. I think the other more worrying thing is the enforcement of it. How yeah. are you going to do it? And so yesterday, my little experience, I have a mask. I wore it on the tube because it's compulsory. Yeah. And as I entered the tube station, there are two big policemen. Uh, it, the, you know, the, the real policemen, and uh, uh, they were checking everybody for masks. Yeah. And I thought that this is, if, surely there's better things these guys could be doing in terms of law enforcement than checking. Yes. And half the people, when they get on the tube, are taking them off. I notice it's mainly the younger people mm. don't bother with it. Uh, they feel uh, immortal, I guess. Uh, so, you know, I think it's it's a sort of rule to make it a law is very difficult. Well, it is. And it's all very well um, to say put two police officers at every tube station. But one, you can't really do that. I mean, I've been on two tube trains since the lockdown. Uh, last week, I went on a Circle Line train and a Jubilee Line train. And I think everyone who was on those trains, very few people, by the way, was wearing a mask. But I've also been on buses right. where people get on not wearing masks. And, and for quite obvious reasons, the, the driver doesn't challenge them. And there's lots of exceptions as to how you can get away with not wearing one. For example, you can say, oh, wearing a mask makes me anxious, therefore I can't wear one. Yeah. Or, or you have asthma or you have a chest infection yeah. or something. Or, or you're eating a sausage disease. roll. I mean, <laughs> yeah, literally, you might as well go... Are you I'm... talking to your phone? <laughs> yeah, but I mean, this is the thing. All of these rules, I mean, if you remember going all the way back to before the Dominic Cummings incident with the Barnard Castle, you know, people were driving places, people were getting spot fines from the police. The, the, the CPS, yeah. in the end, just threw them all in the bin because they said, we can't work out which law has actually been broken. So we're not going to prosecute anyone, actually, after all. I think it's exactly the same with the quarantine for people traveling abroad. Uh, and the number of exceptions are so high that it's it's almost impossible to please. I really feel sorry for small shops. They open up, someone comes in, a couple of youths come in with no masks. Are you going to really cause trouble? Yeah. Uh, you know, someone that's on their own in the shop, are you going to cause con- confrontation? Uh, you know, this is not good for business and it's not good for, for people's well-being, to mental health, to mm. have this tension. People will mess around. They'll try. They'll push it to the boundary to see if they can get away with it. And, yeah. uh, uh, you know, as I say, the police have got better things to do than, than look into this. This is, doesn't seem a good idea to me. Well, you would think so. And as you say, it sort of encourages um, the, the bad feeling in society that people have about uh, other people, for example. I mean, I've just got a text here uh, from a friend of mine saying, basically, um, you know, you're now shamed on social media for not wearing a mask. If you walk around uh, in certain parts of the country without a mask on, people start pointing at you like that scene from The Body Snatchers, you know. And you just think, you know, there's something wrong with a society uh, that doesn't allow people to have freedom of movement, freedom of choice uh, and freedom of association. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Uh, you know, there is this marginal benefit, a small but definite benefit. So 
if you knew you were really helping the cause by preventing other people getting it, and you know the tube is a classic example. Yeah. You know, when you're walking in the country that, or in a park, there's no point at all. If you're in your own house, there's no point. It's funny to see people get in their cars with a mask. Yeah. Why are they wearing a mask in their own car? I know. I mean, no well, sense, they must believe, know? presumably, that if they've got the AC on, that they're going to be sucking in some kind of toxic <laughs> air from the outside. I don't know. I have a neighbour that doesn't open the windows because they think the virus is going to come and get them in their house. This is just not the case. <laughs> it's mad, isn't it? To, it? It is madness. But, you know, we have to come to some societal agreement where we go forward. And I think it behoves the government to come up, show us the data and tell us why yeah. you want to wait 10 days before you implement it. Right. And also, we were told at the time they put the quarantine on that this was all about, you know, safeguarding the public, making sure that nobody came into the country who had been anywhere where they could be bringing us the virus. And the list of, of, of exceptions was as long as your arm. So that if you were a lorry driver, not a problem. If you worked for an airline, not a problem. So it wasn't a quarantine at all, because if you don't quarantine everybody, it's not a quarantine. Similarly, uh, this is a law which is unsustainable, uh, unworkable uh, and unpoliceable, in my view. So it's just another government sort of statement of nothingness, it seems to me. <laughs> you know, during the quarantine, I went to Brussels for, for work reasons. The right. medical people are exempt. You just fill in this form. And, you know, the poor guy at immigration in Brussels station, I went by train, but British immigration in Brussels. And he said, look, I, I don't know the rules. If you say you're exempt, you're exempt. Yeah. And by the way, you're a doctor. Could you examine my finger? I think I've broken it. So I examined <laughs> Right. I've never had that before anywhere else in yeah, the world. But also, you may well be exempt from the rule, but you're not exempt from catching coronavirus. So, exactly. how, on earth, so how on earth is that a quarantine? I, I know. And if you were fruit pickers, agricultural workers were all exempt. So people were coming from right. all over Europe to help out here, which is fair enough. And now they've got a big outbreak with, with fruit pickers in Herefordshire. I know. I know. And so you have to say, if it's one rule for one person, it's got to be... A, and diplomats, why are diplomats yeah, exempt? Yeah, I know. Mr. Corona doesn't care if you've got a diplomatic... Believe, believe it or not, engineers working for the BBC were also exempt. Ah, uh, but not for talk radio, I no. noticed. Well, we haven't got any engineers. We just have a load of amateurs who sort of knock a few things together from time to time. That's the thing. We can't afford any real engineers. But here's the, here's the point. If you are going to try and convince people to behave in a certain way, that's fine. Um, but I just wish they'd be a bit more honest about it. I think honesty, transparency, based on data, it's been poor. And, you know, you look at U.S., exactly that there. Trump just goes on. And, and poor old Dr. Fauci, you know, the chief medical yes. equivalent of the chief medical officer. Poor guy. He's a very experienced guy. I've met him a couple of times at meetings. He's yeah. a very accomplished a cancer immunologist. And, uh, you know, he's doing his best, for goodness sake. And now they've turned on him because it's all gone bad in the States, mainly because no one's behaved themselves. No, right. And, they even have these mask anti-mask parties yeah. you know, where no one, no one's allowed in with with a mask on. You know, it's an individual decision. And one of the guys apparently um, who was one of the leaders of that movement has actually died of coronavirus, uh, which is not to put too fine a point on some of the things that they've been doing. I know. And you know, the idea, uh, my wife tells me about chicken pox parties where you go along and get your kids chicken pox, yeah. mumps parties and so on, mm. where you get delivered. And people have done that for Corona. And it's, it's a sort of dangerous uh, game to play. Well, it really uh, is, because it's not clear, as you know better than anyone, Professor, uh, exactly how you as an individual are going to be affected by it. 
Uh, yeah, and so it is very variable. It's the most variable disease we've seen for a long time. Mm. Where at one end you get heavily infected, but absolutely no symptoms, no fever, nothing, and carry on very well. And at the other end, you end up in an intensive care unit, dying of, of lung problems and lack of oxygen. Right. And so, and the secondary complication of all this is is what's happening in cancer services, which is my specialty. And the, the NHS is still not back to normal. It's getting back, but terribly slowly. It got out of everything very quickly to deal with COVID and did it really well. But the expense is we've got out of everything else. And it's not just cancer, it's cardiac care, it's mental health, it's all the other things the NHS does, it's not got back to yet. And mm. it's quite worrying for cancer. Yes, indeed. Um, I've got a message here from Maddie who says to ask you, Mike, can you please ask the lovely doctor, do we no longer have immune systems? Have they been banned too? Because there will be a kind of an effect, presumably, on uh, immune systems if everybody is now in some way hiding from the disease. The, the, the immune system is very powerful. And there's a lot said about antibody testing, but the real way in which the immune system deals with this virus is almost certainly using white blood cells, T lymphocytes. And the combination occurs, T lymphocytes and antibodies. And we can measure antibodies, but we can't measure T lymphocytes very easily. You can in research labs, but you can't uh, easily, for example, in a testing center. So we've got to get smarter about how we measure things. Measurement's the key to this. We've not done very well in this country compared to Asian countries. I mean, Singapore, Korea, models of measurement. Yes. I mean, the problem uh, now, I suppose, for the government, um, and there are people saying to me, why are you bashing the government this morning? And I'm like, well, I'm not bashing the government. I'm just questioning why it is that they think that introducing the wearing of masks at this late stage into the recovery... Um, is a good idea. But, and I really don't understand the idea that the, the shopkeepers and the people that work there don't wear them. I, that's the bit I really don't get. That, that is true. Why, why would the shopkeepers not want to wear them to keep it off? I mean, it, it's interesting when you go into a shop now, uh, sort of a, a, get a coffee, uh, the, 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 where the till is, there's a sort of perspex barrier. Mm. And that seems reasonable. People want yeah, to, I don't object to that. To work I mean, I was, in no. the, I was in the supermarket yesterday, um, there's a big screen between you and the person who's taking your money. Um, it was a contactless um, transaction. Um, they were also wearing a sort of visor, which a lot of people prefer to the mask. And, and none of that to me is in any way strange. But there were plenty of people walking around the supermarket with masks on, which is also up to them if that's what they want to do. But equally, plenty of people, and I was one of them, walking around without a mask. Yeah. Uh, that Continuing that would seem reasonable. I yeah. mean, it's protecting staff's important. It's, and the fear factor is still there. So allowing them to wear a visor is a lot less threatening than, mm. than a mask where you can't see someone. And so I would support that. Uh, but, uh, you know, we've got to get back to normal somehow. And thank goodness the infection rate has dropped right down. Now, right. There is this report out about second wave and then running into the flu. Uh, you know, we're going to continue to see that. If you look at other countries of the world that have come out a lot earlier, Austria, Czech Republic, there's been no second wave. I looked this morning, yeah. absolutely no hint of it. Australia is the only place where there is, it does look like they've got a second wave three months on. Mm. So, uh, and quite why we don't understand. And it may be due to the fact they didn't close their borders early enough. Now they're completely closed. And, uh, it's difficult to dissect out what... But what we were told do. some weeks ago that Australia had handled it terribly well. And in fact, they had eradicated coronavirus from their entire uh, uh, continent. 
and, and yet when you look at it now on june 24th the turning point mm. and it suddenly shot up on june 20 and it's still going up although in the last two days tomorrow today's data is critical it looks as though it's hit the peak again and it's going down yeah and sometimes what you think is a second wave is actually the first wave in a different place in the country because mm. you're consolidating all the data from sydney melbourne yes. perth and so on and melbourne and perth are much faster, further away than, than Edinburgh and London, for example. Yes. So it's important to get a perspective on, on reality, the situation. No, of course. And finally, of course, when you see these uh, figures like 120,000 might die in a second wave in, in the winter, I mean, to me, that's now become the new kind of Brexit phobia. You know, the people who used to say, oh, well, you know, of course, uh, it's all going to turn to, to, to sort of rotten apples as soon as we leave the European Union. And then the announcement is made that we're leaving the European Union and they say, oh, it hasn't happened yet. And then you leave the European Union. They say, oh, we haven't left yet. You know, and there's still these doom mongers that say it's all going to be awful. Similar to me are these people who say, oh, 120,000 people could die. Half a million people could die. You know, none of that was true the first time around. It, it's difficult. And, you know, I've always said that you know, you've got to plan for the worst, but actually hope for the best. Yeah. And that, that, that's a good strategy. I and mean, the NHS has to plan that there will be a serious second wave. Now, that doesn't mean there's going to be, but it has to plan. It has to have the PPE in place. It has to have the beds in place, and it has all that now. But we also have to get on with business as normal, especially for things that are urgent, like cancer and heart disease. If we don't, more people are going to die of those things than ever died of COVID. And the age distribution will be totally different. It'll be a lot younger, a lot healthier, uh, and, and, and people at work and so on. So we We've got to we've got to take a stock of where we are and actually move in a, in a, a planned way forward. And the politics of this is so fierce with yeah. the left, the right arguing. Uh, you know, the situation is what it is, and we just have to move forward. Getting the NHS back to normal now. So, if you go out to a shop later or tomorrow, are you going to wear one? Uh, once they tell me I have to, I will. I don't want to get into trouble with the police. So you don't want to wear one just to safeguard everybody else's health then tomorrow? I'll get a designer one, a very fancy one. Yes, quite right too. Go to Bista and see if you can pick up a sort of Calvin, yeah, that's a good idea. Calvin Klein version or something like that. <laughs> Professor Carol Sakura, thank you very much indeed. Uh, former head, of course, uh, of the World Health Organization Cancer Programme, Dean of Medicine uh, at the University of Buckingham. Always a sensible voice on these things. But seriously, I mean, you know, please do not come on here and say, why are you bashing the government? I'm not bashing the government. The government have said that you can wear a mask because you have to safeguard the public but you don't have to do it until a week on Friday. Are you seriously telling me that's sensible? I don't think it is. This is Talk Radio. Talk Radio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. How about this from uh, uh, back? This is a very good point. Uh, if you don't wear a mask in a shop, you will be fined 100 quid. If you nick less than 200 quid's worth of gear from the same shop whilst wearing one, you will be let off with a warning. <laughs> That's the state of the UK in 2020. Well, do you know what? That is a very good point and a very well-made one. And it is ridiculous, isn't it, that you're supposed to now wear a mask in a shop but not in a pub unless you work in the shop in which case you don't have to wear one i mean you know call me old-fashioned but i just think it's very confusing nadia says because it's coinciding with the change of guidance for those that have been shielding for four months and haven't been out of their house in answer to your question well that's fine but if you're shielding then you wear a mask nobody else has to do they as long as you're wearing one you're safeguarding your own health and the people that you're shielding or that your own uh, shielding scenario that seems to me to be perfectly sensible. So wear a mask if you want to, but try finding somebody 100 quid for not wearing one. I mean, that's just going to lead to all sorts of nonsense, isn't it? Let's talk to John McTiernan, uh, Tony Blair's former political secretary, because believe it or not, piece of the Times today says uh, that Sir Keir Starmer has confirmed he's received the Equalities and Human Rights Commission's draft report uh, on their investigation into Labour Party anti-Semitism, right? Uh, and apparently Labour MPs have been told not to speak out and prejudice the investigation. Let's talk to John and find out what he makes of it all. Hi, John. Hi. How are you doing, John? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, very well. Slightly confused today about the old mask debate, but that's for another time, I suppose. Um, what do you make of the, the fact that this report has now been completed? Uh, and, and what are you hearing, I suppose, is my first question. Well, um, one of the things that Sukir has is complete um, control and authority over the party. So I'm hearing nothing. Mm. Uh, a draft report has been received. Um, and uh, I think it's going to be taken seriously by the general secretary and the leadership of the party and responded to. I presume that, they, you know, you see a draft so you can correct factual errors. Um, it allows you to think about what your response is going to be. But I think we know what Keir's response is going to be. Uh, he showed that with the sacking of Rebecca Long-Bailey. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, would you expect then for there to be the release of the report officially first before we see any kind of response publicly well, from Labour? Yeah, I'd, th- I'd have thought that the e- when the EHRC uh, re- released the report, published it formally, then Labour will make a response then. Right. Equally, they'll, they'll be looking for to see what um, uh, Jewish organisations say about it and other organisations say about it because, and, and Keir said really clearly, he's going to be um, taking on board uh, what it says, the findings, the recommendations. And so presumably with the, with the help of the draft, you can start to look at, okay, what do we need to do? Is there anything more we need to do about our uh, no tolerance uh, policies, anything more we need to do in terms of internal training, uh, whether of MPs or candidates or even within the party membership? Right. And presumably what they will also want to do is to kind of rid everybody of the belief that the Labour Party is, in fact, anti-Semitic, because the Jewish Labour movement has said that mm. there's been a culture of anti-Jewish racism, bullying and harassment uh, and a casual atmosphere of denial inside of Labour. And this is since the investigation began. Oh, yeah. Look, you just need to see the swarming of some people from the far left uh, of the Labour Party uh, swarming around on, on social media in their de- attempt to defend uh, Rebecca Long Bailey mm. uh, for for promoting that yeah. uh, obnoxious conspiracy theory. So there still are people for whom, essentially, defence of Corbyn is essential 
defense of everything that Corbyn stood for is essential and defense of um, his, uh, you know, his closed mind over accepting that the Labour Party had brought into itself through his leadership uh, some people with very unpleasant views about Israel, about Jews, about Zionism. Mm. Uh, they tried to masquerade uh, as being legitimate in terms of political debate, but but they weren't then, they aren't now. I think the um, uh, the, the Keir Starmer regime uh, will be, is one that those people find uncomfortable. And I think by and large, they're starting to leave the party, which is a good thing for the Labour Party. Yeah. And I, I was going to say, are you satisfied that they are very much, uh, those people are very much on the retreat now from Labour? And is there a kind of um, a knock-on effect in terms of fundraising, in terms of the membership as a whole? Well, it, it, it looks as though, um, you know, a lot of the money that was uh, raised by the Labour Party through the expanded membership was absolutely misspent during the election campaign. Mm. That, that ridiculous uh, election strategy of every seat being a, cam- uh, a campaign priority, every seat being a target seat, meant that a lot of money was misspent, was spent in the wrong places. Um, I think there there is a decline in membership and there will be a concomitant uh, drop in the income, but equally, uh, some people who would never have given donations to the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn are coming back to support it. Uh, so I think uh, we're seeing the Labour Party return into balance. And you, again, you hear and you read uh, and you see people saying things like, you know, it looks like the Labour Party's not for me anymore. Um, and, you know, the thing is, yeah, it isn't for you anymore. It's a good riddance. Yes. Um, or on your way out. And David Evans, who has sent an email out to Labour MPs, uh, basically mm. uh, saying he's the party's general secretary, he says that, uh, that, that, that anti-Semitism linked to the party has caused unacceptable grief and distress for many in the Jewish community. And if that's going to be the, the sort of attitude from, from yeah. this moment on, then that will be welcomed yeah. by a lot of people. Yeah, no, I think it will be. And I think, um, look, we, we, we saw from the, the London borough elections uh, and we saw from the general election that the swings to Labour were halted in areas uh, of London where there were substantial Jewish uh, communities. Uh, Labour needs those votes, Labour needs those seats. We'll start to see at the next London bar elections whether Labour has re-won the confidence. We'll maybe see it next year, actually, in the mayoral elections when uh, when Sadiq Khan has to go to the ballot. So we'll, we, we have a chance to test that, but I think um, every step that Sir Keir Starmer has taken so far, it's only 100 days after all, every step he's taken so far, should be reassuring. I think the way that MPs are respecting what he said and the way that David uh, Evans has spoken so clearly uh, in what he sent to MPs is all signs of the good faith and the good intentions of Sir Keir Starmer. But he's always made clear he'll be judged by the Jewish community, he'll be judged by his actions and judged how they feel he has done. So I think taking this very seriously, uh, and it's a, it, you know, it, it's a sad moment uh, for the Labour Party to be the only the second political party in Britain after the uh, BNP to be investigated by the EHRC. But if it, if it helps us to clean house uh, after the Corbyn regime, then it will be something that's very important, a turning point, almost a clause four moment for us. Yes. Another turning point coming up in December, uh, I'm told that Dave Prentice, the General Secretary of Unison, uh, is retiring uh, towards the end of the year, which is going to be uh, an interesting mm. little battleground for Sakir Starmer to try and control, isn't it? Oh, well, look, all, all, all of the general secretaryships are really important. Obviously, the GMB uh, is vacant at the moment. Uh, Len McCluskey can't have much more, uh, many more years on the clock because uh, he pulled forward his, um, his, his election for general secretary. So he, he, he wasn't barred by the, by the age bar uh, having to retire. So you could see all three of the major unions uh, under, under new uh, leadership 
And I think it's really important to get that leadership uh, reflecting the membership, which is always in all those unions is, is moderate and constructive and a leadership that supports uh, the direction that Keir Starmer is taking the party in. I think it's always been a bad moment for the Labour Party when it's taken its eye off uh, working with the unions to make sure that we get the best and most supportive and progressive uh, leadership. I think that that you know when they when when the, with the merger of the the TNG and the engineering workers, uh, moderate Labour MPs lost a big ally in the engineering union. Uh, and when Unite was taken over by Len McCloskey, you know the far left and Jeremy Corbyn got a huge sponsor. So. It's very likely Unison, with its membership, is going to have a, a, a have a, a sensible uh, mainstream uh, leader. And you know, there's there's so many issues uh, on which they can campaign, which aren't off on the extreme. And as Dave Prentice has shown, you know, he's a very been a very popular general secretary, and he's stuck to the core issues of health and local government and the members that he that his union represents. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd hope that he gets a proper successor. Sure. John, great to talk to you. Thanks very much indeed. John McTinn and Tony Blair's former political secretary there uh, on this report, uh, which has now been completed, apparently, uh, on the Labour Party by the uh, Equalities and Human Rights Commission. Uh, they've handed a draft to Sir Keir Starmer. Uh, he has been in receipt of it for about a week. They will obviously be making changes to it as and when they feel fit uh, to do so. And um, uh, we will hear more about it in the coming few days, I would suspect. So keep your ears open here at Talk Radio. Uh, and we'll bring you the latest on that and many other things as well. There's going to be a big union fight towards the end of the year uh, for who is going to be the next head of Unison. Dave Prentice has been a very big ally of Sir Keir Starmer. In fact, one of the first people uh, to nominate him as the new leader. Uh, so we'll see how that all goes as well. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Let's say a very good morning to Matthew Henderson. Matthew, nice to talk to you again. Welcome. Thank you very much, Mike. Good to be with you as always. Yes, indeed. Let's start off with a bit of Huawei, I suppose, because we're likely to hear this afternoon that, that the deal, which was going to be all-encompassing with Huawei, more or less running our new 5G network, uh, it would appear that basically there's not going to be much for them to do at all. They're not going to take that well, are they? Well, they might not take it well, but like them, I'm now looking very closely at the detail of what this new arrangement's going to be. Mm. Because what all this, the things that one's hearing are that in some sort of way it looks much stricter than it really is. Yeah. There's talk about Huawei kit going on being installed until January. Odd. Why? If yeah. you're going to try and pull it out again. If you're going to pull it out again, you want to do that fast. And yet we hear various date and deadlines that seem to go quite far into the future. And then about as for three and four, that goes on forever as far as one can tell. Mm. So we need to look very, very closely at whether this is actually uh, a proper a rejection of Huawei or just another fudge. Yes. I mean, this government's, uh, this, this government's getting a bit good at fudges, isn't it? I mean, like all of these decisions they're making at the moment on uh, on the wearing of masks, on uh, the quarantine rules, on all sorts of things around the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. You know, they're saying one thing and then allowing something else to happen. Well, we've got to be very clear about it, because if it isn't clear, the Chinese side will have a stick to beat us with anyway, because it looks as though we're just uh, kicking kicking Huawei again. But our American allies and our other allies in the Five Eyes will say, well, look, if you can't get rid of this stuff in good time, if you're carrying on installing it, for goodness sake, until January and then taking years to remove it again, to what extent actually have you done anything that's any better? Mm. This is a question that we must ask. Yes. And as far as you're aware, are other parts of, of, the, of the network going to be sort of picked up and run with by other companies? Because because we're hearing that there are certainly companies in Scandinavia that could take parts of it, certainly companies in America that could do stuff. Um, I haven't really seen anything concrete about what's, what's happening on that front. 
Well, do recall that the original arrangement in January, unsatisfactory as it was, already said that only 35% of the uh, equipment installed will be, would be sourced by Huawei. So from that point of view, there are lots of other, other people, and they, they certainly will be stepping up to the plate, clearly, if the aim is. And it seems to be the aim that ultimately, at some point, there will be no Huawei in it at all. Then obviously other people are going to be involved. But the crux actually is how soon is this going to happen? Mm. Because if it doesn't happen soon, it might as well not happen at all. Because if we've still got kit in the system, the Chinese can update it remotely at any time, and that could breach our security all over again. So from that point of view, it's much less clear-cut than it should be. And yes. We have to look very quickly at what emerges later today. Well, I'm always still rather puzzled by the onset of 5G, given that in a place as far away as Tunbridge Wells, you know, you can go south of Tunbridge Wells by about two miles, and there's no 3G signal, never mind 5G. I know, it's hopeless. And so the whole country, as a, as a general rule, is not terribly well-served currently by any network so i mean I, I haven't got great deal of confidence that they're going to improve much when they put 5g in i quite agree and this is possibly one of the reasons that it's been so easy quite frankly for huawei to establish a foothold because when you've got a fairly chaotic and ill thought through situation then people are going to reach out naively or deliberately to get something that looks quite good pretty quick and pretty well proven so there are real reasons why Huawei has been able to establish that foothold. Right. But many of the other reasons that they have are less are less attractive and less commercial. Yes. And we're hearing this morning as well that Lord Brown of Maddingley, the former BP boss, is going to step down um, early on as the UK chairman of Huawei Technologies, um, which I presume has something to do with this decision that's being announced today. I would imagine so. And one hopes that he'll be followed rapidly by a group of other people who shouldn't be on the board either. <laughs> yes. I mean, presumably this is all part of the, the, what you and I spoke about last time, the kind of insidious um, sort of mission creep, if you like, of Chinese diplomacy into various levels of, of the British establishment and no doubt uh, other European countries' establishments as well. Well, it's not all that insidious, Mike, I must say. I mean, it's pretty damn clear. Yeah. Um, there's far too much of it and it has to stop. If we have any idea that Huawei's bad, it's bad because it's connected to other stuff, which is bad as well. Let's be consistent. We can't just pretend that we've wiped the slates clean by get, trying to get rid of Huawei. There's an awful lot of other stuff that needs getting rid of as well. Right. And, and will this encourage the government to do so, do you think? Well, it depends how it pans out. It depends what they're trying to achieve. If they're trying to sell us another fudge, it won't. No, exactly right. And let's talk a little bit about the military um, side of things, because fascinating story on the front page of The Times, more or less suggesting um, that Britain is going to set itself up as a kind of confrontational country versus vis-a-vis uh, -vis the new China um, by being quite, I would say, provocative in sending an aircraft carrier out in that general direction. It does suddenly look that way, but I don't think it's true. The fact is, these plans for putting the Queen Elizabeth out there are quite old. They are completely in context with uh, wider freedom of navigation operations carried out there by uh, countries from the free world. Mm. It is essential that those freedom of navigation operations should be carried out because the world depends on freedom of navigation there. Uh, world trade, and that's not just British world trade, it's the world trade of the Taiwanese, the Japanese, and pretty well lots of nations who who go through the Straits of Malacca and generally need to be able to travel around the South China Sea safely and that general area safely. That is what world trade is based on. Now, China has been pitching for control of that. China has been militarizing it. China has been threatening states that go through there. Mm. And it's effectively acting as if that sea belonged to them. We need to keep showing that they cannot do that. And this is how we will do it. But it's the pattern that we're just continuing. We're doing it more strongly now, but it needs to go on and it needs to work. And we're also doing it in the company of one or two allies as well. So it's not as if Britain well, is sort of standing, these, these standing are, alone. 
Yes, Mike, that's exactly right. I mean, the fact is most of these uh, exercises are joint exercises anyway, mm. because actually the international rules-based order depends on everybody being involved in it, actually standing up for it. It's a great thing that Britain will be able to do that more effectively now with better equipment and a better profile. But when we hear talk of China kind of expanding uh, into places like Hong Kong, obviously, uh, we're hearing that they're expanding into India in a, in a way. They're all over Africa in terms of the ownership of a lot of the minerals there and in terms of the infrastructure building. They're in South America. I mean, is this all a little bit too little too late, perhaps? I don't really think so, actually, because to be quite honest, the Chinese have done it so ineptly. They've overreached themselves so far. They've created such ill feeling in so many of those parts mm. of the world. And they've left economic chaos behind them uh, throughout, not only because of COVID. I mean, that's really flagged it up. But the situation in South America, large parts of Africa and so on, as a result of the incompetence and the speed and the general venality of this whole process has not achieved the purposes that even China hoped it would. So from that point of view, um, there is now uh, a very different situation from what was presented to us years ago by the Chinese. The Chinese globalization is benign. It isn't benign. It's pretty inept mm. and it's pretty unproductive. So from that point of view, uh, the sooner it can go back to normal again, the better. Yes. There was a time when people said that most of America's debt was actually owned by the Chinese government, and that was very a dangerous place for the Americans to be. I'm not sure if that's still the case. Is there any danger that all this money that we're kind of generating in this country for COVID-19 is in any way going to be indebted to China? Our two economies are connected, and there is a strong likelihood that they will, to some degree in future, remain so. Uh, China is, and I hope will once again be, a stable, great economy. At the moment, it's in a very bad situation mm. uh, because a lot of the debt that they that they are owed will never be repaid. And that's not American debt. That's debt from all these countries that their Belt and Road Initiative has reduced to debt slavery. Right. That was a very bad move because now it will not come back to them. But at any rate, debt to China is going to be a feature of a lot of transactions. But they should be the transactions where we do not suffer from that debt because we become dependent exclusively on China. That's what all of this a reshoring of dependencies is about and we should stimulate the rest of the world economy that's why it's important to be in the indo-pacific mark you because we need to show that we're fully engaged there we want to do business with the countries that previously china has been trying to turn into puppet states so if you were sitting uh, matthew in downing street right now and you had an opportunity to sort of brief people as to what to do next after the huawei announcement to try and sort of shall we say cleanse the system here of, of too many government uh, links with china what would the next stage of, of that be i think it's very important to indeed to try and reframe our notion of what china is good for there is a, as you were saying earlier a very large proportion of our elites and that includes at universities as well which have become very dependent on Chinese investment, which has been deliberately directed through them very often as active collaborators. And they've given the impression that somehow or other, that's the only way the world can continue to work. Mm. That is absolutely not true. And we need to correct that messaging. We need to re-educate people. We need to tell them the truth about China, its intentions, what it's been doing and what it will continues to wish to do. And when we've done that, it will be much harder for people to stand up and say, oh, that's absolutely splendid. We can have a golden era again. These people are all about motherhood and apple pie and they're our best friends forever they are not we should now make that very clear 
Yes. Well, that would be a great start. Matthew, thank you very much indeed. Matthew Henderson there, Director at the Asia Studies Unit at the Henry Jackson Society, saying that Huawei really is only the beginning because as far as uh, he is aware, there are an awful lot of other connections between China, uh, the Chinese government, Chinese companies and the United Kingdom. In fact, I'm pretty sure I saw just last week um, a, a new um, sort of campus being unveiled at one of the universities. I can't remember exactly where. Uh, and it was the Huawei campus. So they're putting loads of money uh, into research and development in this country, loads of money uh, into uh, seats of learning, uh, higher education organisations and all that sort of thing, probably schools as well. Uh, and no doubt, definitely buildings, uh, property and all manner uh, of different investments in the UK. So we are very dependent upon Chinese money. And never forget that. But surely the point is, as, uh, as we were just hearing there from Matthew Henderson, the point is that we should not be as uh, reliant upon China as we have been in the past. And that needs to change. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. He's still going, by the way, old Oliver Dowd. I don't know what he's saying now. Anyway, never mind. Let's do the periodic table instead. It'll be far more interesting and far more easy to understand, I know, no doubt. Tom Whipple is here, Science Editor at the Times. Tom, thank you so much for being so patient with us. That's okay. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Now, the periodic table is something that I kind of can, it takes me back to my school days because I haven't, apart from looking at my kids' versions of it, I haven't really seen one for quite some time. Um, Tell us about who came up with it and, and what it does. Well, exactly. It's the one thing that we all remember from our chemistry lessons. Yes. There's been fraying and yellowed poster on the wall, right. uh, all of the elements in their order, and we'd, we'd sort of vaguely remember it. And chemists get very excited about it, um, particularly now. It's the 200th anniversary of its discovery by a guy called Dmitry Mendeleev. And the word discovery is important there because you can think of this as just some way of ordering all of the substances in the world. But chemists say this is the only way of ordering all of the substances in the world. And that's the amazing thing about it. A bit like mathematicians of prime numbers Mm. and biologists of species. This is the grouping of the elements. These elements are substances made from only one atom. So one type of atom. So things like iron or calcium or helium or hydrogen. And Chemists think it's so important that there's a plan to blast off the periodic table into space as a message to aliens to say, we are sophisticated, Mm. because they think aliens would have exactly the same way of ordering it. And why is the ordering important? So what it is, is you start with, broadly speaking, the lightest one, and you keep going as they get heavier and heavier, and we put them into these groups where they all behave in similar ways. And this was was discovered by this guy, Dmitry Mendeleev, a, a Russian, who just spent ages thinking there must be a way to logically put all of the elements together. And he thought, these ones all behave in one particular way, so we will put those in one group. These all behave in another way. We'll put them all in one group, and we'll go along the lines. And he didn't know anything about how atoms were made up. But, and he was so confident in this, he left gaps. He thought there needs to be an element here that we haven't found yet. And lo and behold, they turned up. Mm. And the amazing thing is, what this, this guy did long before we knew about protons, neutrons, and electrons, which are the things that make up atoms, was he discovered this hidden pattern within them that tells you how they're made and what they do. So all of the ones on the far right, 
They have the same sort of arrangement of electrons, which means they behave in the same way and don't react with things. All the ones on the far left, if you put those metals into water, they'll fizz and flame because they've got the same arrangement of electrons. And it's an absolutely astonishing discovery. And only many, many decades after his death did we actually understand why his periodic table is what it is. That's quite astonishing, isn't it? Because like, it's, it's, it's hard for us to imagine, I think, nowadays when dis- discoveries like that are looked upon because practically, we, we've, it certainly feels as though, and I know you'll probably say it's actually not true, but it feels as though we've kind of discovered everything. But back then, when that suddenly appeared, you'd have been looking at it kind of absolutely um, just gobsmacked, wouldn't you? Going, how on earth did you even come up with that? Well, I mean, yeah, or you just think you're mad or you've got a crazy theory. It's not till we started finding these elements he'd predicted. Mm. So at the time it was made, there were only about 63 elements. Now there are 120. And he started in filling in these holes. And then he thought, God, maybe this Dmitry Mendeleev guy was onto something. Mm. Uh, maybe he, he really did have a point. It was, it was an ex- astonishing flash of inspiration. And basically chemistry traces its origins to that. It's like, like biology traced its origins to Darwin. Uh, chemistry says this is when we made it systematic. We started thinking what are the properties of matter. We started understanding what happens when they unite and join. And it, it all comes back to this one moment with this one chemist. Yes, quite remarkable stuff. And, and as we went on from his discovery and on his creation, if you like, of the, uh, of, the, of the table itself, you know, what use is it to, say, somebody who's not a chemist when you're studying it at school, it's one of those things that you're kind of thinking, well, I'm supposed to memorise all this. I'm not really sure why. Yeah, it's... Uh, I, I mean, the, the, the easy answer is it's, it's, about, it's about human knowledge. It's, you know, you will get through quite happily your life without knowing this. A caveman quite happily got through their lives. But actually, all of the things you use now, the rare metals in your mobile phones, you know, the things that make up lithium-ion batteries, they're all about understanding chemistry they're all about understanding elements mm. and they all work because of the insights that started then um so in one sense this makes absolutely no difference to your life in another sense this is everything around us that we use yeah i mean I, it's similar to when i discovered when when i didn't know really much about the city and what was done there until my sister got a job working for a metals uh, dealer and she said to me, do you know who buys most of the silver in the world? And this was obviously back before digital cameras. And I said, no. And she said, it's Kodak, the people who make film, because silver is a very big constituent part of actual, you know, film that we used to put into the back of a camera and actually, you know, have to print the paint prints out and all of that. And it had never occurred to me that that would be the case. I'd assumed that, you know, people that made silver cups you know, would buy the most silver. But in fact, you know, so it's always interesting to kind of look into these things when you're not an expert and, and discover things. Yes, of course. Yeah, there's, and there's, there's all of these rare elements that we, most of us haven't even heard of, but that are absolutely integral to making particular bits of uh, circuitry and, and batteries and things yes. like that work. Um, and yeah, and that's, that's, that's all, about, all about elements and it's, it's all about the periodic table. Yeah, and I imagine gold is probably a similar um, element which is used industrially by certain organisations who probably buy more of it than any jeweller would ever do. I don't, I don't actually know about gold. Gold is a really weird one where a lot of its intrinsic value is simply based on the fact that people value it. Right. You probably need 
economics editor on to describe that one wrong. <laughs> yes, well, quite. And, and, and the gold bars that sit at the bottom of the Bank of England. Well, fascinating Sorry. stuff. Tom, thank you very much indeed for sparing the time and sorry to have kept you waiting. I blame the Culture Secretary, Oliver Dowden, who made a lot less sense uh, than you did. Tom Whipple there, science editor at the Times, telling us all about uh, the periodic table. Uh, and if you ever were at school in a chemistry lab, you will remember it uh, as if it was yesterday because you're kind of constantly looking at the same thing, trying to work out why it is you're supposed to memorise it. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 